Well, good morning and happy 4th of July. Good to have all of you here. I, 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 you probably reflect back on 4th of July's growing up, and for me, my favorite memories were um, growing up as a younger uh, boy, and we would go to visit my dad's uncle up near the Hudson River in New York, and all I remember is that it would be a great celebration, a picnic, all the hot dogs you could eat, all the hamburgers you wanted to eat, uh, corn on the cob, uh, always uh, had watermelon, and several different kinds of pie with ice cream. That's what I remember. It was a time of celebrating. But as I grew older, I I realized that the 4th of July is really a time for us to celebrate the freedoms that we have in our country and recognizing those who have actually made that possible by their sacrifice. And, and then I think about the freedom that we have in Christ. Jesus said, if the Son will make you free, you'll be free indeed. And the liberty that we have because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So good to have you here. I'm one of the pastors here at Chapel Point. And um, I love these summer holidays, don't you? We have Memorial Day and we have Fourth uh, of July, we have Labor Day, and great times to be able to get together with family and to enjoy. So um, I hope that you're making plans to be able to do that. We want to talk, um, and it's kind of appropriate today, we talk about worship and work and rest. And we're going to We're going to look at that from the book of Exodus, and if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me to Exodus 30 and 31. I want to start off with a quote by Gordon Dale, who wrote a book entitled, uh, Work, Play, and Worship in a Leisure-Oriented Society. And this quote is, um, I think, very insightful and ties into the message today. Most middle-class Americans tend to worship their work, work at their play, and play at their worship. Let's say that again. Most middle class Americans tend to worship their work, work at their play, and play at their worship. And yet in the book of Exodus, we see the opposite, that worship really sets the pace for everything in our lives, and that our work takes on meaning because of our relationship with God, and that even rest is sacred because of who God is in our life. I want you to know that as we, as we focus on the fact in Exodus that we are redeemed to be ruled, that God redeemed his people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt with his mighty arm, his outstretched arm, and, and all that he did to deliver them, ultimately through the shedding of blood, through the Passover lamb, and God made a way where there was no way through the water of the, of the Red Sea. God redeemed his people so that he could bring them to Mount Sinai where he would rule over them. And we, as the people of God, have been redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus on the cross, but he didn't redeem us so that we could just go to do our own thing. He redeemed us so that he would become our king, he would become our Lord, because that's when life is at its best. So in Exodus chapter 30, um, we we've discover this whole theme of worship continues on, because we are redeemed to worship, to work, and rest. We are redeemed by God so that we will worship him. And as we worship him, we will then find our work. And as we work, we will find rest. I want you to look at worship. In chapter 30, we see the focus on worship. Chapter 31, in the first 11 verses, we find the focus on work. And chapter 31, verses 12 to 19, we find the focus on rest. So just think of those three words, Worship, work, and rest, and it ties together these chapters. We're redeemed to worship, work, and rest. So worship adds to the meaning of life. 
Worship adds to the meaning of life. This past week, I've been, I read through the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you haven't read Ecclesiastes recently, it was Solomon's um, uh, approach to talk about where we find meaning in life. And some people read Ecclesiastes, and it sounds like a kind of a melancholy book because he's saying vanity or emptiness, all of life is just soap bubbles. It, it seems to be empty and apart from meaning. But the reality of what Solomon is saying is that meaning in life is only found in relationship to God. That is, worship gives meaning to life. And so he comes to the end of the book, and he says, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. We can only find meaning and purpose and fulfillment in life in a relationship with God. One of the things that we've seen is the study of the tabernacle, and I want to just show another picture of that here to to focus on this model of the tabernacle. That is, um, uh, this is actually from a, a Friends of Israel ministry, and I want you to just notice that the tabernacle was in the middle of the camp, and you see all the tents that are around it? God wanted the tabernacle, God's tent, to be in the center of the entire encampment. Around that tent were the, the Levitical uh, tribe, because they were the priestly tribe, and around them in order, all of the other 11 tribes of Israel. And it's symbolic of the fact that God wants to be in the middle, in the center of our lives, and worship reminds us of that. Every time you and I personally worship, every time we assemble to worship, we're saying, God, you are the center of our lives, not self, not anyone else. And so uh, all of life we saw last week is to be like the, the priest's headband, holy to the Lord. All of life is to be lived as an act of worship. So you get to chapter 30 in verses 1 to 10, you find this altar of incense. And uh, we're, it's described for us here, it's to be made of archaea uh, wood. It is to be then uh, covered with gold, verse 3. It was 18 inches square and 36 inches high. The horns of the altar were to be built out of one piece with it and had molding around it, and then there were to be places for poles to go through it to be able to carry it as they moved out. And we're told that it was to be, in verse 8, put in front of the veil that's above the Ark of the Testimony, in front of the mercy seat. So in other words, if you pictured this, this Ark of, the, uh, of Incense, this altar of incense, this was put right in front of the veil that separated the holy place from the holiest of all, where the Ark of the Covenant would be, that, that, that would be only one day a week, one day a year, that the high priest would enter there on the Day of Atonement and shed the blood. So the closest piece of, of furniture to the holy place was this altar of incense. It's very significant in that way. We're told that they were to, um, uh, every morning, in verse 7, Aaron is going to burn fragrant incense on it. When he uh, trimmed the lamps, he used to do that and, and again burn the incense. He's warned in verse 9 not to offer unauthorized incense. He's not to put a burnt offering, a grain offering, a drink offering. No blood uh, offering is to be put on it. So the purpose of this altar was different from the altar that was outside in the courtyard where they made all those sacrifices. This altar was to only burn incense. Now listen to the psalmists, and you may want to put in your Bible, Psalm 141, verse 2, and see how the psalmists understood this. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up my hands as the evening sacrifice. Let my prayer be counted as incense. If you go all the way to the book of Revelation, 
there's a place where they're pouring out a bowl of incense with the prayers of the saints. And so there is a, a sense in which this altar of incense pictures the prayers of God's people and the praise of God's people before the very throne of God. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of that. I want you to notice then, beginning at, um, at verse um, 11, he talks about the census tax that was to be paid. Don't you like paying your taxes? Well, this tax was to be paid to the, to the tabernacle, to take a census of the people, a ransom of your life when you number them, so that there would be no plague among the people. And everyone that, that is numbered in the census is to give a half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And to make this as an offering to God. Everyone who's numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward will give the Lord's offering. The rich isn't to give more, the poor shall, shall not give less. And this offering is to be made to make atonement for your lives. You're to take that money from the people and give it to the service of the tent of meaning. So friends, that's why even when we give to the Lord, that's an act of worship. Whether you give online, or you give in the box in the back, or you have it drawn out of your check account, doesn't matter. Our giving is an act of worship. Why? Because we're recognizing God as the possessor of heaven and earth, and he owns everything. He then, in verse 17, down to verse 21, talks about the basin of the laver for washing. Verse 18, it was to be made of bronze. It's put between the tent of the meeting and the altar of sacrifice. Water was to be put in it, verse 18. And Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and their feet when they go into the tent of meeting, whether they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they're washed with water. And notice this, that they may not die. It's interesting how many times in these two chapters we're told that they're to do something in a certain way so a plague doesn't come upon you and that you shall not die. Verse 21, they're to wash their hands on their feet that they may not die and it'll be a stature forever for them even throughout their offspring through the generations. So we talked about this labor last week and the labor was used for washing and we're reminded that in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, we're told that Jesus washes his church with the washing of water by the word. Friends, the Bible tells us that we need to be cleansed regularly. Why? Because we get defiled regularly. Uh, interesting that when Jesus washed the disciples' feet in the upper room, uh, Peter objected and says, you won't wash my feet. In other words, it's beneath you, Jesus, to do that. And Jesus said, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And Peter says, then wash all of me. Give me a full bath. And Jesus says, no, you've been cleansed because of your faith in me, but you still need to be washed. And in the same way, you and I need to be continually washed by the washing of water in the word. We need to be cleansed. We struggle with sin, we struggle with defilement, and friends, that's part of the reason why this word, the blood of Christ, cleanses us from sin, and the, the water of the word of God also cleanses us. It's impossible for you to walk in this world, to walk in your life as a life of worship before God and not need to be continually cleansed. Friends, it's, it's a regular occurrence in my life. Happened again this morning. I'm reading the Bible. God convicts me of sin, and I, and I repent of that and confess it to him. It's because the word of God, the spirit of God uses that to cleanse me. I hope you're open to that. I hope you welcome confession. I hope you welcome repentance into your life because it is the effect of the word of God. Then we're told in verse 22 to 33 about the anointing oil. 
And I'm not going to get into all the details, but there's a formula, almost like a recipe for the anointing oil. Uh, it's to have liquid myrrh, sweet-smelling cinnamon. It's to have aromatic cane, cassia. It's a hint of uh, olive oil. And you're to make this sacred anointing oil blended by the perfumer, you know, the ground together, and it shall be a holy anointing oil. You're to anoint the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the table, the utensils, the lampstand, and, and all of the other aspects that are used in the worship. The altar burnt offering with its utensils, a basin, and a stand. You're to consecrate them that they may be holy, and whatever touches them shall be holy. You're also to use the same oil to anoint Aaron and his sons, and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy set apart anointing oil throughout your generations. It is not to be poured on the body of an ordinary person, meaning only the priests. And you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy and it's to be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. In other words, this formula for anointing oil was only to be used in worship of God. And anyone that used it for any other purpose would die. You get the idea when you keep reading about if you do this, you're going to die. If you do this, you die. If you disobey this, you're going to die. That God takes worship a little more seriously than we sometimes do. God says, you mess with this anointing oil, I'm just going to kill you. Now, now friends, I, I think we've lost a little bit of that sense of just how holy God is, we talked about it last week, and how we need to take God seriously. One of the things I've learned in life is to take God seriously and not take myself so seriously. The second part gives me a sense of humor. The first part gives me a sense of God's holiness. We need both of that. He says, don't use this oil for anything else lest you die. And then look at verse um, uh, 34 and following. He says, uh, he talks about the incense Take sweet spices, stacta and, and anica and galbum, and sweet spices with pure frankincense, and uh, they're to be each uh, a part. And take an incense blended by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. Beat some of it very small, put uh, part of it before the testimony and the tent of meeting where I'll meet with you, and it'll be most holy for you. And the incense you shall make according to the composition you will not make for yourself. In other words, this isn't to burn at home. It'll be holy to the Lord. And whoever makes any like it to use as a perfume will be cut off from his people. Again, it's interesting. This is a matter of life and death. So let's pull this together. You've got the altar of incense. You've got the laver. You've got the, the uh, um, tabernacle tax that was paid. You have the uh, anointing oil, and you have incense. All the description of this given to us. But I want us to focus on the fact that all of this is pointing towards the centrality of worship in the life of the people of God. That worshiping God was to be taken seriously, and worshiping God was to be central. Just as a tabernacle was in the center, so God is saying, if we're going to live lives that are set apart to God, then the first work of our life is worship. And friends, worship isn't just something we do on Sunday. Worship is something we do every day. Worship and praise and thanksgiving to God ought to be the expression of our heart continually before God. Why? Because, friends, everybody's life has a center to it. Everybody's life has something that is the driver of everything else. 
For some people, it's their work. Some people, it's their play. Some people, it's a possession. What is the driving center of your life? What is it that brings everything together? And friend, God wants to be that center of your life. And worship is saying, God, you are the center of my life. My life belongs to you. You redeemed me, so I belong to you. Paul wrote it to the Corinthians. He said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He's saying every detail of our life needs to be centered on the true and living God. And that's the same thing that Solomon was saying in Ecclesiastes. Friends, worship is not something you do once a week and check it off your boxes and just say, I've done that. I went to church, paid my dues. Worship is a whole life lived as a living sacrifice before God, Romans 12, 1 and 2. All of life as a sacrifice for him. Friends, when you and I live that way, we're going to find out that worship is the meaning of life. When we do that, we find that work then is the contribution of our life. I want you to look in chapter 31, beginning at verse 1. God spoke to Moses and says, I've called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. How many of you have ever seen the movie Ben-Hur? Ben-Hur, okay. If you haven't, it's a great movie. And um, this is the original Ben-Hur, because when it says son of Hur, that really in Hebrew is Ben-Hur. So this is the Ben-Hur, not the one of the movie. Okay, uh, Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he says, I filled him with the Spirit of God. Now notice this. This man is a craftsman. He's going to have responsibility for making all the furniture in the tabernacle, for um, all of the garments. He's going to oversee all of that work, and he's going to talk about his work. But God says, I have filled him with the Spirit of God, and I've also filled him with ability and intelligence and knowledge for all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, okay? in cutting stones and setting and carrying wood and work in every craft. And behold, I've appointed with him Aholiah, the son of Ahishamach of the tribe of Dan. And I've given to all able men ability that they make all that I command you, the tent of meaning, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that is on it, and the furnishings of the tent, the table, the utensils, the pure lampstand and its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with its utensils, and the basin and the stand, the finely worked garments, these are the garments of the high priest, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests." And the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I commanded you, they shall do. So in other words, worship gives meaning to our life, but work gives, gives the contribution of our life. And I want you to just see, this is so fascinating to me, and, and they're going to be mentioned later in the book of Exodus, Bezalel and, and the others that are mentioned, full of the Holy Spirit so that they could do work. They were given knowledge to do the work. They were given skill for craftsmanship to do the work. And I want to suggest to you that what they did mattered to God, not just because the, the, the craftsmanship of all the furniture of the tabernacle mattered to God, but because all work matters to God. All work matters to God. Some of you may think that work was a result of the fall and the curse, I want to tell you that's not true. When God created Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden, he gave them work to do. 
he gave them a job. He, he told them to, to till and care for the garden. That was before the fall. That was before the curse. In, in other words, because God himself works as a creator, he gave to Adam and Eve the responsibility to also be creative and to do work. Work was a part of their relationship with God. Work was to reflect the fact that they were image bearers from God. And I believe God gives to everybody unique creative abilities. Every person is given by God, not just for ministry in the church, but for the work you do. And Belazel was given this ability. He was given by the Holy Spirit. He was given the ability to do this work, to do the craftsmanship, to create in the way he created Sometimes I think we have so divided between our relationship with God in church and the work we do 40 to 60 hours a week. But I want you to know all work matters to God. Let me give you some proof for that. Um, I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, with me to um, Colossians chapter 3. We get one legal turn to another passage in a sermon, all right? This is my one legal turn, okay? Colossians chapter 3. In the book of Colossians... Um, really, Paul is talking about how all of life is to be lived under the lordship of Christ. And uh, in, in this particular book, he talks about the relationships that we have with one another as we put on the new self in Christ. And in chapter um, 3, after talking about husbands and wives and parents and children, he talks about servants and masters. I want you to pick it up in verse 22 of Colossians 3. Bond servants. I want to explain what that is. Slavery in biblical times is very, very different than slavery today that we've had in America that has been such a blight on our country. Slavery, you actually had slaves who were teachers. You had slaves who were doctors. You had slaves who were accountants. That It was basically a two-class system. You had landowners and people who, of great wealth. You had some tradesmen. There was almost no middle class. So you had freemen that served, and you had slaves who served, and there were all different levels in society. So this, this is kind of a broad statement when it talks about the fact that you need to um, understand as bondservants, obeying everything, those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, in other words, just when they're watching you, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. When I was in Bible college, I had responsibility to, uh, to uh, work in a grocery store, and I was given uh, more responsibility so that I oversaw part of this uh, store and actually managed the store at night. And here's what I noticed. There were some people that worked hard when the manager was watching them. And when they weren't watching them, they would go in the back room and sit around and do things. You had to constantly be on them to do the work that they were getting paid to do. Here we're told, don't do that. Bond servants obeying everything, not with eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Verse 23, whatever you do, work with your whole heart, heartedly, for the Lord and not for men. He's talking about a person's job. He's talking about the work we do, that it matters to God. That we're not just doing it for the boss, we're not just doing it for a paycheck, we're doing that unto the Lord knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as a reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now get this. Paul is saying that when you check into your job, whatever it is you do, driving a truck, teaching kids, uh, keeper at home, whatever it is you do, a salesperson, 
whatever you do, he says, you're doing that to God. In other words, when we think about holiness to the Lord, there is no division between sacred and secular in our lives. That our relationship with God, we don't check out of that relationship when we check into work. Because all of life is to be lived before God. And so your work is unto the Lord, and it's also a contribution to others, just like the craftsman who made the tabernacle. Can I just talk to parents for a minute? One of the, one of the great tragedies that I've seen as a pastor and as a president of a university is how many kids wind up in their 20s and have no clue as to what they're good at. I've seen students change their major four times, and that's very expensive in time and tuition. And I wonder, where in the world were mom and dad when these kids were growing up? One of the things I want to encourage parents and grandparents, study your children. Study their abilities, study their interests, study their habits. You know, when the report card comes home, it's usually a time of scolding, but it ought to be a time of evaluation. Well, one of our kids wanted to be a doctor, didn't do well in science. We had a conversation about that. Did really good in business classes. He is now in business today because that's an aptitude that he has. I, I like to look at a, a child's abilities in terms of subjects in school, hobbies and interests. What are the things that they're good at? I want to give you just something real simple. You may want to write this down as parents. There's only three kinds of jobs in the world. People that work with people, people that work with things, and people that work with ideas. You can combine two, but you almost never combine three. So there's some children and teens, they're just really outgoing, and they like relationships, they like interacting with people, and they're going to want to work with people. There are certain jobs where you do that. There's some people, some kids, you watch them, they just like working with their hands. They're very tactile. They like to build things and repair things, sometimes tear things apart and not know how to put them back together. I mean, that, that, that happens. So those are kids that probably want to do something in the trades or do something with their hands. And there's some people that like to deal with ideas. They're the teachers and the preachers, and they're the philosophers, and, 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 so, and, and you can combine a couple of those. But try to determine, are they really good with people, or they like to work alone? Are they really good with things, or are they really good with ideas? And you kind of help them sort through what the options are. Let them be able to even connect with people in certain trades to, to shadow them and find out what they can be good at. Let's do a better job with our children and our students to help them determine what God's calling is in their life. I don't want our kids to grow up thinking, God only cares about what I do at church. No, God cares about all of your life. Because worship, worship is the meaning of life and work is the contribution of life. Here's the, the last thing I want you to see in verse 12. In, in, in chapter, we're all the way back now to Exodus. There's not a chapter 12 in Colossians if you're looking for it. Okay? Exodus chapter 31 and verse 12 starts with talking about the Sabbath. So the Lord says to Moses, you're to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, this is really important. It's like God's putting a bold print, highlighter, underline. Above all, you're to keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me, Jehovah, and you, Israel, throughout your generations, that you might know that I am the Lord, Jehovah, who makes you holy, who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath, because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it, again, notice this, please, will be put to death. 
Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from amongst people. Six days' work shall be done, and the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Friends, when God repeats things like this, he's trying to let us know that he's taking this very seriously. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout our generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me, Jehovah, and, please note this, the people of Israel, that in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So if worship is the meaning of life, and if work is the contribution of life, then rest is the replenishment of life. Now I'm going, to, um, I'm going to tread into something that's probably going to cause some of you to be challenged in your thinking. So buckle your seatbelts for a few minutes, if you would, please. First of all, Sabbath is a principle from creation. Sabbath is a principle from creation. Genesis 2, 1 to 3, after the six days in which God created everything... God set aside the sixth day, that would be to a Saturday, as a day of rest. Now, please understand this. God didn't rest on the, on the seventh day because he needed rest. God doesn't need rest. Go check out Psalm 121. God doesn't slumber or sleep. God doesn't need rest. God is God. God doesn't get exhausted. God doesn't need a vacation. God doesn't need a day off. So God rested on the seventh day, not because he needed rest. He rested on the seventh day because we need rest. It was a principle of creation that there should be a rhythm of life, of worship and work, but also rest. And that we would need that in our lives. And being someone who struggled as a workaholic my whole life, I just want you to know I've learned this the hard way. That there needs to be a rhythm in my life of worship and work and rest. So it is a principle, get this, it is a principle from creation. And when you have a principle from creation, it never gets eclipsed. It's still binding in some way. Here's the second thing I want to say. It's not only a principle of creation, it is a commandment of law for Israel. So it is a commandment, it's a part of the law, it's one of the Ten Commandments, but please notice this, for Israel, for Israel. So what we are reading here in Exodus is emphasizing, it is for my people Israel, it is a part of the covenant relationship that I have with them, it is binding for the nation of Israel that they keep the Sabbath, it is a sign for Israel, it is to mark them apart. So now it's not just a principle of creation, it was actually a part of the law of God for Israel. Now, here's where it's going to mess with you a little bit. I am not Israel. You are not Israel. The church doesn't replace Israel. God still has a plan for Israel. And of all of the Ten Commandments, this one is not repeated with the same emphasis in the New Testament as it is for the nation of Israel. The principle of creation still stands. But as a religious observance... It is not taught for the church that way. Matter of fact, let me just give you this with real clarity. Colossians 2, 16 to 17. I can't ask you to turn there because I only have one legal turn in the, in the message. Colossians 2, 16 to 17. But listen to this. 
Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regards to the festival or a new moon, catch this now, or a Sabbath. So don't let anyone pass judgment on you in questions about Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so there's a spiritual application of Sabbath that we see in the New Testament in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 that there is a Sabbath rest for the people of God that we find in faith in Christ. So what is this saying? There are those who teach that when Christ rose from the dead on Sunday that the Sabbath shifted from Saturday to Sunday. Friends, there's nothing in the Bible that teaches that. Sunday is the Lord's day. It is the day when we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And it's a good and healthy thing for us to take a day, any day, to be able to celebrate rest and to take that rest. I can tell you there's some people that don't get rest on Sunday, and one of them is pastors. Uh, others are farmers. There's other people, you just you don't get rest on that day. There are people that have to work in a hospital in the emergency room on Sunday. That's not their day of rest. And, and Sunday was never declared to be the Sabbath by God in the New Testament. I know that I'm messing with you, but I'm just calling you to examine the Scriptures. However, having said that, by the way, Jesus had more controversy with the Pharisees over Sabbath-keeping than any single thing. They were constantly angry at him because they had added a whole multitude of laws talking about how many steps they could take on the Sabbath, whether they could collect eggs on the Sabbath, whether if their ox fell into a ditch they could get it out on the Sabbath. I mean, they had laws ad infinitum about the Sabbath. And Jesus constantly violated them. And they were constantly angry with Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, the Sabbath was not, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. In other words, Pharisees, you missed the whole point. You missed the whole point. Now, I do want to go back, though, to this idea of Sabbath. From creation order, God established that Sabbath needs to be practiced by people. In other words, we need rest. Studies have been done to show the psychological, the emotional, the physical effects of continuing to work seven days a week without a break. And it's actually demonstrated that people are more creative, they're, they're more effective if they get rest. And, and taking a day of rest isn't even primarily about you, it's about God, but it's about saying all of life is to be lived as a redeemed person of God under the rule of God, holiness to the Lord, that even our rest matters to God. So what does Sabbath rest look like? Sabbath rest is a day when you are set aside from your normal activity and work. And when you are replenished in soul. When you're able to do those things by spending extra time with God, extra time with your family, doing those, getting out in creation and enjoying it, uh, maybe getting the exercise that you haven't gotten on some other days, to do those things that replenish you. Sabbath is about replenishment. Sabbath is about rest. It is not a time to be selfish and say, I need me time. No, what you need is more God time. You probably need more family time. It's a time of replenishment. Do you build into your week rest? Is that part of the rhythm of your life? I want you to know it matters to God. It matters to God. And I think it needs to matter to you. It's part of the replenishment of life. It may be a day for reading. It may be a day for, for spending time with friends. It may be a day of, of just but enjoying those things that replenish you. So I want you to think for a minute, what replenishes you spiritually 
what replenishes you mentally, what replenishes you physically, what replenishes you emotionally. And if you think about those four realms of life, what replenishes you spiritually, what replenishes you in terms of your mental life, what is it that replenishes you um, physically, what is it that replenishes you emotionally and in terms of your relationships, all of those four realms, we need to be replenished. And friends, it's only when that happens in your life that you're living a healthy life. So when I read earlier that most middle-class Americans tend to worship their work, work at their play, and play at their worship, I want to say we are redeemed by God so that God will rule over all of our life, including our worship, and that worship is central to us. Worship is the, the thing that brings meaning to life. That work is where we make a unique contribution in our creativity of life, because God made us in his image to be creative, and that rest is the thing that replenishes your life. So let me ask you, how can you make worship your reset for meaning in your life? How can you make your worship daily a time when you hit the reset button and saying, God, thanks for reminding me that life isn't all about me. And life isn't even all about the expectations of others on my life. That you are the center of my life. That you are the tent in the midst of the tents. You are the one who I want to offer that incense as a praise and as prayer to you. And secondly, I want to I make a contribution with my work. Work is not just about making money. Work is about, about honoring God, but also making a contribution to others making a difference in other people's lives, using the creativity God has given to you. We need to help children discover what that will be for them. And that rest is rest your weekly replenishment of life at the end of a day of rest. And and frankly, I just want you to know, I learned early in life that I needed, even as a pastor, to take a day when I didn't do pastoral stuff. I remember one pastor saying to me, you know, the devil doesn't take a day off. And I said to him, since when is the devil your example? Jesus is mine and he rested. God is mine and he rested. You need to do that. All of life lived as worship. All of work, a part of that worship. Rest before God because it matters. Let's pray together and just bring this to God. We are redeemed to be able to worship and work and rest. Father, on this um, holiday weekend when we have a chance to be able to come apart, enjoy time with family and friends, and God, help us to push the reset button in our lives. Help us as the redeemed people of God to rediscover what it is to have worship right at the center, that our work, no matter what it is, has meaning and purpose because you created us in your image to work even as you work and to be creative because you're creative, and to make a contribution to others. And may in all of life, we learn to practice Sabbath. We learn to practice rest. Not as a legalistic thing, but as a a matter of the rhythm of life that we desperately need. And so, Lord, may we rest in you, but may we also find those things that replenish us in body and soul and spirit, in mind and emotions. May we be people who know what it is to rest in you. 
for the glory of God over all things because we want to eat and drink and whatever we do to do it as an act of worship to you as your living sacrifices. In Jesus' name, amen.